All right. Well, I, I did want to begin this morning just by saying that after being immersed in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, and just thinking back to our immersion in the Gospels last year, I think I'm finally ready to make this announcement that I am going to go ahead and maybe start a brief memoir of my life as a Christian. The, the working title I have is something like, My Humble Life, How I Judged People Who Self-Identified with Impulsive Peter, Distracted Martha, and Foolish Saul, Until I Became All Three in One. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Peter and Martha? <laughs> no way, I'm Jonathan and Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Saul being foolish? Oh no, I'm Jonathan, ready to fight in the battle with good motives. I mean, the reality is that God has done a really beautiful work in my life, just changing me and really freeing me in a lot of ways from the sins of people pleasing and always worrying about what people were thinking about me. But here's what's emerged as those sins have died out. Now I've started to see self-righteousness, pride, always, or at times just speaking and acting foolishly before I've prayed, before I've paused, before I've sought wisdom from others. But right alongside that, I've also seen how anchoring it is to know that God loves fools who turn from foolish ways and go back again to acknowledge Christ, our wise and loving, holy Lord. The only one that is really worthy of our trust And that's what we want to keep in mind as we're digging into 1 Samuel, that it's looking to God, our Savior. That's the main thing we want to focus on. I mean, we have a lot to learn from looking at people like Hannah, Eli, Phineas and Hophni, Samuel, Saul, Jonathan, and David. We're going to start digging in in our next session. There's a lot to learn from them. But we never want to stop, sisters, at self-examination. We want to let our study of these Bible characters kind of lift our gaze to Christ, because that's what's going to protect us from either falling off on one side into self-righteousness and always identifying with the perceived heroes of the Bible. And it's also going to protect us from falling into despair and discouragement and just being bowed down. So we want to keep looking up at the Lord. And as Bevy uh, got us into 11 and 12 last, chapters 11 and 12 last week, she reminded us that God is a promise keeper, that for the sake of his great name, once again, being lifted up to the bigger picture, for the sake of his name, he's never going to reject his people. And she brought out as well as other speakers that our response to his gracious love, protection, and rescue, it's not to be cavalier about sin or lazy in our pursuit of holiness. No, our response to his love is to keep turning towards him and asking for his help to be faithful women. And I love how Bevy reminded us of Romans 15.4 that says, whatever was written before was written to give us hope and to help us. And our text for this week, which is a long one, so a couple of long uh, chapters It's going to instruct us, and it does have the power, if we will receive it, to help us as we are going to observe a foolish king, a faithful son, and even more, a faithful God. And so if you're going to take notes today, you might have those three categories to organize them. What do you learn about human foolishness, human faithfulness, and then what do we see about God's faithfulness? 
just before we jump into 13 and 14, I want to just give this as well, is that these chapters are going to set the stage for the kingship of David. They're also going to set the stage for what we're going to see about Jonathan's sacrificial friendship and really his servant heartedness towards David, both of which all, all of that are consequences of Saul's foolish actions. So let's jump in. Chapter 13 begins acknowledging that some time has passed and Saul is reigning as king. Uh, scholars disagree on what some of the time frame actually is in these verses, but at the end of the day, that's not really what's most important. What we want to gain here or glean, gain and glean, is that Saul is king and he's facing the Philistines, enemies of God and enemies of God's people. So verses one to four open with hints already that there's trouble, trouble in Saul's kingship. We see this account of Jonathan defeating a group of Philistines and yet Saul takes credit for it. And the people, he calls the people to rally to him at Gilgal. Now let's read, I'm going to read for us verses five to seven to see what happens next. It says, and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth Now, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and holes and in rocks and tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Now, imagine that. The Israelites are fearful. They're hiding in holes and in caves. They're trembling as they follow the king that that they have asked for, that they have demanded. And they had good reason to be be scared. There were 36,000 troops among the Philistines, and they had metal weapons to fight with. Now, the key section in chapter 13 is verses 8 to 15. This is where Samuel is God's representative who had instructed Saul to wait seven days for him to return, he confronts Saul. He was the one that was going to relay the Lord's guidance to Saul. So Saul had been instructed to wait for Samuel. So let me read this section, and then we're going to try to unpack it a bit. Verse 8, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to greet him and to meet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, I saw the people were scattering from me and you didn't come within the days appointed. And the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. And I thought, well, the Philistines are going to come down against me. And I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord, your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you saw, you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose up 
and went up from Gilgal and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Now, Samuel, Samuel's words here are strong. He's basically calling the king of Israel a fool. But it's important to note that what Samuel is saying isn't the same as calling someone stupid. It's not the same thing that maybe you've done or you've heard somebody say to you when maybe you've done something not so smart or they disagree with you. And what do they say? Really? Really, Ellen? Basically, you fool. This this isn't what Samuel's doing. In the Bible, a fool is somebody who lives as though God does not exist, as if God doesn't matter. In the Bible, a fool acts opposite of God's word and in opposition to his character. Listen to a few texts. Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 12.15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Now, opposite We could also say that a worldly view is going to say that you are a fool. We are fools if we believe that God exists. Really? You believe in this ancient text to be true for today? You fool. I mean, isn't this why the apostle Paul in more than one, on one more, more than one occasion taught us as believers to be prepared that we would be seen as fools by the world. Now back to this interchange between Samuel and Saul. Maybe you're thinking, all right, well, okay, Saul, yeah, he was a little bit hasty. Maybe he was a little bit foolish, but was it really that bad for him to take action in the midst of these scary circumstances? I mean, he did wait until the seventh day. I mean, let's give him that much. Okay. So he didn't wait for Samuel to come, but he did wait till the seventh day. Seriously? I mean, Samuel, who is he? to get so angry at Saul. For all we know, maybe Samuel was dragging his feet. No, it it may be natural for us to think those kinds of questions for me as well, but to defend Saul's actions rather than hold them up to the commands of the Lord is, well, it's foolish. God's mouthpiece, Samuel, told Saul to wait. Why? Because It was all about him. No, because he was God's representative. He was the mouthpiece of God. He was going to bring the word of the Lord to Saul to give him guidance on a lot of issues, including how to go about this battle with the Philistines. But Saul proceeded forward uh, without, without that word of the Lord, basically communicating that when in a pinch, when there's an emergency, God's word is is dispensable. Now, his actions, really, Saul's sin in this instance costs him the kingship. And that's going to bear out as well in loss for his descendants, including Jonathan, who will not inherit the throne now. So chapter 13, maybe you're feeling it. Chapter 13 closes out showing us how helpless Israel really is. Their king has been rebuked for foolishness, for which he blame shifts <clears throat> and self-defends. Uh, Samuel has left. The Philistine army remains strong and they are, excuse me. The Philistine army is strong and they're armed with metal 
weapons in contrast to the Israel army, which has Saul and Jonathan armed with, with a sword and a spear. But the, the rest of those guys, what they had to fight with was farming equipment. It's not a very great situation. And the author of Samuel knows that the, the reader, the listener is wondering what's going to happen. Well, we know what happens. We have chapter 14, but we also have the rest of the testimony of scripture that says and gives testimony over and over and over that when we see the utter weakness of God's people, their vulnerability, their brokenness because of the sin they've chosen or sin that's been done against them every single time, this is the backdrop to God showing up in a glorious way to bring deliverance, not without pain for his people. But it's always the backdrop for God to show up. So as we get into chapter 14, uh, the commentary by Dale Ralph Davis uh, was so helpful to see, even just to set, set the table for us as we begin this chapter. He just comments, what do we see? Well, Jonathan is on the move. He's, he's moving out in faith. Saul is sitting. He's sitting under a pomegranate tree. And who's with him? A good buddy, Ahijah, the priest, who... Who is he? He's from the line of Phineas. Do you remember Eli, his sons Phineas and Hophni from chapters one and two? So what, what a dismal scene this is. We've got the rejected king of Israel along with a priest whose line of spiritual leadership has been rejected. These are two prominent leaders for God's people. Well, let's look at verses six to seven of this chapter because this gives us hope that faithfulness amongst God's people hasn't been extinguished. So let me read this for us. Verses six and seven. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. I love that. Now, Jonathan, with these words, he's not being arrogant or foolish. He's going out trusting the Lord to deliver, but he's trusting the Lord to deliver on his terms. Jonathan knows that God isn't beholden to him to do what he commands. Jonathan knows that the Lord of hosts isn't his errand boy but he's also not a helpless deity sitting on his hands. And our text gives the account. If you followed along in chapter 14, our text gives the account of Jonathan and this faithful uh, battle companion, the armor bearer initiating a sudden attack on the Philistines that takes the lives of 20 Philistine soldiers that produces massive panic in the Philistine camp. They don't know what's happening and they be actually begin to turn on each other. Now, Saul, remember, he, he's not in the throes of the battle. He's watching this from a distance or maybe he's getting kind of play by play by messengers that are coming, but he's aware of what's happening. And he learns that actually his son and his son's armor bearer, they're the ones that are in the throes of this battle. So what does Saul decide? I need me some guidance from God. Bring the ark. So now he wants guidance. And as he's watching or hearing about this battle, the priest is inquiring of the Lord. What should we do? Saul's looking at the battle. Priest, Paul stops, says to the priest in so many words, I don't have time for this. Withdraw your hand. 
And Saul rushes in to battle without waiting for the Lord. Victory is seeming evident. And maybe Saul, Saul was probably aware of that as the Philistines again are destroying each other. But here's what else, here's, uh, here's what else happens during this time is lots of other Israelites, they see that victory is imminent and they start coming literally out of the holes and rocks and caves. Those that had hidden come out from hiding. Even those that had been traitors change sides and come back to team Israel. Everybody wants to get in on this victory. But the text makes it clear in verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day. It was the Lord's doing from beginning to end. Now, we've got to address this passage in chapter 14, 24 to 46. It might seem a little bit weird. Like, where does this fit in with this big battle scene? This is a section that might be called Honeygate or how a foolish vow almost killed a man. Let me give us a summary of what happens. And really, this leads us to the somber closeout of chapter 14 in this long narrative. The the author of 1 Samuel is giving us more details of what happened at the beginning of this day. He says that as the day was unfolding, uh, the people had been hard-pressed or were in distress. Why? The text tells us Saul had issued a kingly curse over the people that they could not eat that day. Why did Saul do this? The text tells us Saul's very words in verse 24 He says, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I have avenged my enemies. Not the Lord's glory, not the honor of Israel as God's people. No, Saul, once again, is doing something foolish, using his power and authority in a way that didn't honor the Lord. So the people were exhausted. They were weak. They were famished. Well, the text shows us that during this time, Jonathan didn't know that his dad had issued this command, this oath, this vow that people had to obey. He He's busy fighting. He's walking along in the woods, forest, sees some honey, dips his staff into it, lifts it up, has maybe a tablespoon of honey. He's enlivened by it. And then some of his his buddies say, you better watch out because your dad, he issued a vow that We aren't supposed to eat it all today. And what was Jonathan's response? He basically says, my dad, my father is a troublemaker. He's he's made trouble for us. And there's something in that for us that this is what happens when we are foolish, disobedient, when we demand to do things our own way usually we will add trouble to our troubles and we will trouble others that are closely connected to us. Now, the rest of that section shows how famished Israelite army during that day of battle, uh, they actually, when they rushed on the spoils, they broke God's law about how they were to eat animals, which they were not to eat them with animals that had blood. They had to be prepared in a certain way. Now, amazingly, Saul, in this instance, he does call out the sin of his people. It's like, he shouldn't be doing this. He builds an altar, and then he prepares that night to go back and finish off the Philistines, maybe to gain more spoil from the Philistines. We see in 1436 that the priest steps in to remind Saul, um, 
shouldn't we ask what God thinks about this? Shouldn't we draw near to the Lord? And Saul says, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Let's ask of the Lord. But this is sobering. The Lord is silent. Saul gets no answer from God about, should I go forward or not? Now, Saul knows something is amiss. He was probably remembering what had happened earlier on. We see it in chapter 8, verse 18, where Samuel said, in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So Saul is assuming that he knows something is off and he assumes that it's someone else's fault. So an inquiry begins, their process by which they would discern the will of the Lord to get um, information was this casting of lots. So they cast lots. It comes down to Jonathan and Saul. Cast lots again, and Jonathan is revealed as the guilty one. He ate some honey. So Saul declares, I mean, he's got a safe face. You will die, Jonathan. What? Yet what happens? The Israelites, they rush to Jonathan's defense. They, they basically say, no, you don't. How can we put to death the one who is instrumental in our salvation? Now, can you imagine how Saul felt in that moment? His kingly oath is being disregarded. His son is being honored and lifted high as the savior, in a sense, of that day, of this battle. And I wonder, I truly just wonder if Saul's violent jealousy and insecurity, which we're going to see in the coming chapters, were the seeds starting to be planted when he saw his son, Jonathan, lifted high here. We don't know, but we're going to see that there were roots of bitterness in Saul that are going to explode in our coming chapters. Now, finally, now, if you made it to the end of 14, well done, sisters. This was a long narrative. But the final section, verses 47 to 52, give us a very important historical summary. It gives us uh, evidence, if you will, that throughout his kingship, Saul did indeed lead the Israelites in waging war against the enemies of God. 47 and 48 say that wherever Saul turned, he routed the enemies of God. He did valiantly and struck them down and delivered Israel. So what are we to make of this? I mean, Saul's being called a fool. Now he's being lauded as a great military king. Maybe he wasn't such a bad guy after all. Well, again, Davis and his commentary is so insightful. He, he's, he tells us, that there's a historical account, account of Saul's life, but there's also a covenantal or Godward account of Saul's life. In many regards, Saul was a military success, but the Lord is looking for disciples more than worldly success. And this is true of us as well. Regardless of how successful we perceive to be in any given realm, our careers, our marriages, our parenting, our singleness, our friendships, financial security, podcast followers, reputation, societal applause, having our name engraved somewhere. Regardless of that, what matters in the end is what will our legacy say about how we loved 
how we advocated for the weak and the vulnerable, how we stood our ground for Jesus and the gospel, for the word of God, even though all around us, people are saying that that is foolish and they're deconstructing it and making it something new to tickle our ears. What will our lives say about, not that we were perfect Christians, that's not the point, but were we Christ-dependent, kingdom-minded followers of King Jesus? Saul lost his kingdom because of foolish sin. King Jesus forgives our sin and saves us from foolishness by teaching us to walk in his ways. And he's so patient with us as we learn and stumble and bumble, as we see the, the weaknesses in ourselves. Saul refused to humble himself and was ready to sacrifice his own son. Our king did humble himself. Our father in heaven sacrificed his son to have relationship with us, to make us sons and daughters with our foolishness and all. Saul did many good works. We have that on record. But he missed the whole point. Loving the Lord, his God, through obedience, worship, repentance, acknowledging his weaknesses and sins, loving others. And let's not miss this too. Did you catch Jonathan's armor bearer, this man who stood by Jonathan's side and the Israelites that defended Jonathan? They're nameless. We don't know who these people were. They're just nameless people, but they are highlighted in God's word for their faithful participation in God's purposes. So for all the famous Christians, celebrity Christians, mommy bloggers and popular authors and podcasters, the high, high, high majority of God's people throughout history have been walking out their salvation, faithfully living for Jesus, acknowledging their foolishness and coming back to the Lord. They've been doing that probably like most of us in the hidden places of this life, hidden, but, but beautiful in humility. And I offer that to remind you, maybe to comfort you, strengthen and, and lift you up that King Jesus sees you. He knows you. And he does have good works for you to do. Absolutely. Ephesians 2.10 promises us that. But he also has love and comfort and strength to keep us faithful to the end. That our legacy will be one that honors Christ. He promises that. More than an earthly prophet, we have the living word of God the scriptures, and an indwelling counselor to guide us. More than a loyal armor bearer that says, I am with you heart and soul externally, we have Jesus who sticks closer to us than a brother and has come to make his home in us. More than a courageous warrior like Jonathan, we have that indwelling savior who has faced our worst enemies, sin and Satan, and he's won. It's done. He has won that victory. So, hey, listen, as we close up, if like me, you wrestle to not give way to impulsive and foolish ideas, to your impulses, which are great ideas, right? If you've added trouble to your troubles and troubled others, if something right now, today, this morning is distracting you from seeking the face of God, sister, don't get stuck looking at yourself at your weaknesses, 
No, look up at Christ, encourage each other in your groups, pray for each other, that we would be those of whom it would be said. A part of our legacy would be, you know, she didn't have it all together at all, but she sought to fix her heart's affections on Jesus. That's what she sought to do with her life. We have a savior who makes us wise, who keeps us in that race of faith, sisters. And he's the one that's going to enable us to reach the end in faithfulness. This race of faith is his, and he's invited us to be a part of it. So let's keep our eyes on Christ. So in light of these things, I want to close us in prayer from Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, so good to know that you make fools into wise daughters because of your love in us, Jesus. We thank you that we can run the race of faith, that we really can have our eyes fixed upon you and have courage and strength and humility to throw off distractions, to throw off the sin that is just chaining us down. It's hindering us. Lord, we need your help to keep our eyes on you so that we don't, so that we don't grow faint, that we don't grow weary, that we don't lose heart in our marriages, in our parenting, in our jobs, in our finances, in our own walk of faith, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you will never say to us, you fool. No. You say, beloved child, Come to me in your weariness. Beloved daughter, look to me. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at your personal reserves. So Lord Jesus, because of the great cloud of witnesses of people that have gone before us, we cry out to you and pray. Keep us faithful to the end, Jesus. Just walking that out one situation, one day at a time with our eyes on you. And we acknowledge right now, Lord, We have nothing in our own power to do this, but through Jesus Christ, we have what we need. So we thank you, Jesus. We thank you that you are interceding for us right now. Spirit, you're interceding for us right now. And so we go into this day seeking your guidance, your help, and your reminders of your great love for us in Christ. Amen.